Gumtree Limited. Hi, Phil. It's Ollie again. Ollie! Hello. Ollie Grant, the Ollie G. Yes, that's me. How are you, Phil? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. I've just been paintballing okay. with the Bloomsbury group. Got wow. Wolfie right on the hand. Real stinger. Anyway, point is, I had a brainwave in the middle of Capture the Flag. I looked down at the camo gear and realised, I, I mean, I looked like a, a Jackson Pollock. And I suddenly thought, do you know what else could look like me? Ollie's book. Bear with me. We turn your book into a colouring book. Yeah? So, so you keep it as it is. A colouring book. You keep it as it is, but we sell it. So, so we change one thing. We start selling it and we bring with it a pack of Crayola so that your reader can draw all over your book. So you're asking the reader to deface my work? It's not deface. It's not deface. It, it's contribute. I'm thinking Pizza Express menus. We get your book into every branch they have in the country and then every Dick, Jane and Wendy, when they go in for their American, will be drawing all over your work. So, so, it'll get you out there. So just, just so we are being clear right now, you're saying... Totally clear, yeah. You want to turn my book into a disposable tablecloth at Pizza Express? I want to turn your book into something that lots of people will read and react to. Think about it. Your book is about an artist, yeah. and, and he's in a book. But what we can do is we can turn your reader into an artist who draws on your book. Hmm? So, think about it. Come on. Are you drunk? No. No, but I'm very excited. I'm off to uh, lay down some tracks with Jacqueline Wilson for her new EP, so I've got to go. Hello and welcome to another episode of Walking With, the podcast where I, Ollie Grant, struggling author and critically acclaimed nobody, goes on walks with writers who I admire and just want to hang out with. This week I am walking with a man whose books have had me howling with laughter one minute and in silent awe the next. His debut novel, Submarine, was published in 2008, a modern day catcher in the rye which cemented him as one of the most exciting new voices in fiction. It was turned into a film starring Craig Roberts, Yasmin Page and Noah Taylor and was directed by the legendary Richard Ayoade. His second novel, Wild Abandon, was met with similar critical praise and won the Royal Society of Literature's Encore Award. His latest book, The Adulterant, is a scathing satire of urban life and responsibility. He is Mr. Joe Danthorne. Joe, thanks for coming on a walk with me today. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to be walking in the, in oh, the sun. What a day for it. It is. The first warm day of the year. Spring has sprung. We arrived here and then we had to, a bit delayed kickoff because Joe had to go into a costume change. <laughs> well, I saw that you were wearing shorts. And, now and it gave me the confidence to embrace embrace my inner short wearer. <laughs> Expose our knees. Expose our knees. To East London. Yeah. Um, but it's good. So fill in the listeners. Where are we? Um, 
We are in Clapton Square at the moment and um, we're going to walk steadily north and northeast following the lowering house prices <laughs> to the Lee River and uh, along the marshes a little bit. Lovely stuff. Looking forward. So this is where you live. You live here. Yeah. I live here. Yeah, I've lived. I don't want to give your address away to listeners. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, li I live in Clapton, where I've lived for um, six years, and I lived in Hackney for ten years. So this is very much your, your home turf. Yeah, it's my home turf. Um, and did you know at some point that you always wanted to write about about this part of London or and, and living in this this area? I, d I didn't actually. I I always thought um, that London was somehow too bigger subject mm. for me to tackle. It seemed like one of those cities that it's got so many stories, so many subcultures, mm. so many people living in it with their own views that to try and cover it in fiction, you'd have to write, you know, your 900 page sure. doorstopper. Door and, and who's got time for that? And who's got time for that? <laughs> and who's got talent for that? Um, so there's a sense that also a sense that I didn't feel like enough of a, of a Londoner, whatever that is. Mm. You know, for a long time, I just felt like a bit of a guest yeah. in the city, which I think a lot of people probably feel like. Do you, do you now feel more like a Londoner? I do, actually. Something, something happened. I'm not sure. I, I kind of remember, I don't want to say it was a, an epiphany, but one day I thought, no, I think it might be home now, which is yeah. quite, quite a strange, not strange, quite exciting feeling. Um, I suppose that's the thing, or maybe like a... Yeah, as you enter the city, you, you maybe the first time you end up with like dread and resentment going back to work on a Monday. Then kind of right more now you feel like oh, it's actually quite nice coming back here. This is yeah. I, I moved here what three years no, two three years ago now. At the start, I was just baffled by this place. Just like yeah. gobbles you up. You know yeah. where to go, and then slowly, slowly you put a few you know feelings do, out. Do you feel like the thing that I felt made a difference was building my inner map and joining together points of the city? So that actually I had this, like, I had a sense of what the city was geographically. Like, yeah. cycling around helped. This is the thing, getting a bike. Yeah. I would recommend that to anyone. Because yeah. suddenly you know where you are and you know little shortcuts. Yeah. And you go, oh, I want to go to that little and it's cafe. No, and it's no that. longer um, islands of space around the tube stops, which is what, which is what London was. For, for me before I lived yeah. here, you know, it was just like, I have been to these 10 tube stops yeah. and that is the city. Uh, Fitzrovia, what's that? <laughs> right. Where is it? Where is Fitzrovia? Fitzrovia know. is north of Oxford Street, I believe. I th yeah, I, th I think it is, it's basically that area there. When you go in on Google Maps... You're supposed to call it NoHo now, Ollie. What's that? That's NoHo. Yeah, exactly. NoHo. You got it. We're, we'll ha like, basically, so we're trying to steal all of N New York's But didn't they steal it from us? Right, they stole them from us, but now we're probably going to have to have like a, like a... What, it does, what is ours? Well, I don't know, like a Grybecker or some sort <laughs> of like... But if, but if, if there's no ho and Soho indicating north and south, what does is, what is the ho stand for? Um, I don't know what the H is for, but I feel like the, the O is up Oxford Street or something. Okay. No, that makes sense. Anyway. North of and south of, anyway, whatever. Yeah, what kind of, what kind of bicycle do you have? <laughs> I have, I have, I, well, I have a somewhat, um, it's not quite a penny farthing, but it, it, it's, it's a slightly laughable, is one old, wheel old, bigger than the other? Uh, well, no, but it's a slightly laughable old, old fashioned bike, um, nice. that, that is, it's so huge and heavy and I'm quite a tall person. Mm. 
that when I, I ride it, it does look like I'm on horseback. <laughs> it's it's a, a so bit it's silly. It's highly impractical. It's high, It's not that impractical. It's, no, it's highly practical because you can pile loads of stuff on it. It's it's oh, it's, you strap it's, things to it. It's like a, donkey. It, I call it the iron horse. It's very <laughs> very practical. You can carry almost anything on it, including people. Jeez, you've got a you've got a kid now. I have. Yes. Is it a girl or a boy? It's a little boy. I haven't yet tied him to the, the bike. <laughs> no, he will do that. I haven't yet sorted out the, um, the logistics The logistics of it, but I'm actually really looking forward to it. I think now the weather's better, I might, mm. I might try and get him on. What off. I always, I, if I was, if my, you know, wife was taking my kid out on the bike, I would just freak out. Yeah, I think that's how bike. my wife yeah, feels. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be okay with that. No, it is. Maybe one of those um, sort of tandem chariot things that you get at center parks yeah or, or, or the ones with the big trailers although that scares yeah. me too yeah you know like kids just kind of like playing <laughs> in the back as as you cycle them through or maybe um, just heavy traffic that's strapping it to yourself might be the best option i think the seat at the back is isn't there yeah it's a question of like <laughs> do you want to see your child ahead of you but also <laughs> implicitly put them first in the case of a crash yeah or not see them behind you and not know that they've undone their seatbelt and, and <laughs> kind of like jumped ship. It's a tough choice. Yeah, it is a tough choice. Think about that. Tweet us your answers, what you guys would like to do, listeners. Um, and in more pressing news, um, you've had a haircut. I have. I mean, that's probably three years ago, but we'll call it news. Hey, well, calling some, you know, newspaper reports. <laughs> Some of the images didn't didn't quite match up. That's right. Yeah, the the the, the Guardian still haven't updated their photo library. So idiots, I'm, idiots, go and get the images. I'm still a long hair, according yeah. to them. How do you feel, like Samson? Have you lost your strength? Well, I I I was worried about the Samson angle, mm. so I kept my ponytail in a Ziploc bag, sealed beneath my bed. <laughs> Seriously, um, and then I returned to it the other day. I'm wondering how it's how my, how my power is getting on. And it had turned to a kind of gross, like basically I opened the bag and it like filled my lungs with this Ugh. kind of like particulate of old hair. <laughs> and uh, it turns out my hair, my power rather had just become toxic. Toxic, what time. did you do? Was there a ceremony? <laughs> no, there was no ceremony. It was simply putting it in the bin and is moving on. Is that recycle or? <laughs> yeah, right. Or I don't think I can sell it. Uh, no, but can, you can do that. You can. Because you could have um, made if a lot of money. I, at the time, if I'd sold it fresh. Yeah, um, some fresh air. That's right. You know, with a bit of backstory about... Mm, who it came from. Where it's been. Imagine being like... The things it's seen. I've got some of Joe's hair. <laughs> <laughs> auction it off. Actually, my friend Dave's getting hair replacement therapy. I should have... What? We could like, have done um, an exchange. Uh, a um, transplant. I don't know if it's a transplant. I think it's like what Wayne, Ro Wayne Rooney had. And that's a transplant. Oh, is it? Right, yeah. then, then it's a transplant. He got it from his bum. What? Yeah. He got the little hairs around his... Wow. Yeah. That explains a lot about exactly. how his hair looks. Also, how it, there's like a maximum capacity that it can grow. <laughs> as with... Uh, as the same down there. Right. Because you never go like, oh, I need to just go and trim the, you know. Yeah. Right, that's interesting, but... Could, so maybe it's a money-saving thing in the long term. If you take, if you take hair from areas of our body which don't grow, they, they reach maximum growth capacity. Yeah, I mean, that's We would actually, never have to have a haircut again. Right, yeah, if you just like, you know, what, I guess the hair on your bum 
on the Wayne Rooney's bum, not your bum. <laughs> no, not mine. Grows to... My locks down. <laughs> That's right. Oh, they should have worn these shorts. They're too short. <laughs> it, it, it grows to the kind of like, uh, you know, army yeah. crew cut sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. So that's good. He can just keep that forever. Yeah. I've just shaved mine off. It feels nice. The, the, the hair on your head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Both. Yeah. And it feels amazing. Have you ever had long hair? Oh yeah, big time. Oh yeah. I had, um, I did that whole, you know, take gap year, reinvent yourself as you enter. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar university. with this, yep. Um, so yeah, very much, very much had the long hair. I had, they, they then, then matted into dreadlocks as well. Okay. So that's even worse, isn't it? That was so presumably I, not, a, not a style choice, just a lifestyle happening to you. It was, it, well, I don't know. Bit of both. It was sleeping on it and then it just got matted and then, yeah, the end, the, the tips of the ponytail turned into a dreadlock. Oh, man. So I was that guy in like English lectures, like pasty white with like ginger dreadlocks. And I was like, he is such a twat. <laughs> but I just you, Billy you, 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 you reinvented yourself. As a twat. It, yeah, that's, I mean. And looking we're, back, we're, you, can, you can invent yourself as anything and, yeah. I, and I chose Listen, that. We all, we've all done it. about now your books and stuff it was at UEA when you started writing your first book Submarine yep was that a, cool, that, was that a master's creative writing course you wrote? it was it, it, I was also an undergraduate there so okay. I um, studied creative writing and English literature as an undergrad and then I studied just creative writing for my masters um, and did that sort of evolve out of like a course assignment piece that what we just meet it, it did yeah the very last piece of writing I did as an undergraduate was what turned out to be the first chapter of Submarine. Yeah. So that, um, when I started the MA, I already had this voice. It was quite lucky, really, because I think you can spend a lot of the, mas the master's course kind of floundering around thinking, what am I working on? So it was lucky I just had discovered something I wanted to work, concentrate on, and I wrote Submarine basically all the way through my master's, um, and then continued it at the other side as well so for, for a couple of years yeah well yeah two birds one <laughs> yeah, no. kind of yeah the, the dissertation is actually not the length of novel but yeah i handed in what's the kind of now the middle kind of exciting section of submarine Wicked. as my dissertation so for those who haven't read it um it is a book set in South Wales, Swansea, yep. right, which is where you grew up. Where I grew up, yeah. And it follows the life of 15-year-old Oliver Tate, who is a hilarious character who is sort of old before his time and is incredibly intellectually insecure and has this heightened perception of himself. And um, he, he takes it upon himself to fix his parents' failing marriage and then whilst also trying to do all the things that like 15 year old does in school and girls losing his virginity etc and it's a um yeah it's just a very very funny um coming of age tale so what the, the uh, you mentioned earlier that that, that that voice sort of came to you had that always been something that you were kind of like chewing over and, and thinking there's there is something here what drew you to that like yeah. adolescent character i think it wasn't that i was necessarily drawn to Adolescence. Although I do remember thinking that there weren't novels that reflected my particular moment of adolescence. You know, there are obviously tons of coming-of-age novels, 
but I, w I hadn't come across a story set in the kind of beginning of the internet era yeah. and the differences that made. So I guess I was filling in a perceived gap in the market, um, but also I was just following my uh, excitement and it, Oliver's voice was the first voice really where I thought, well, I, th well, I think I'm actually writing something worthwhile here. Yeah. You know, I've done a lot of writing, but I hadn't ever really thought I was doing it well. Yeah. Until that point. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he is incredibly funny and he has all these sort of deadpan um, delivery of lines. Yeah. It's, it's very, the humour in that is great. And he's also, his, his focus on the minutiae, it's, it's almost quite partridge-like mm. in his like, obsessive nature of things, but also has this like, ridiculous intellectual aspect to it, yeah. which, is, which is very funny. I suppose there's something about that. I think that growing up when you start to get into books and you get into academics that it can actually, you don't actually really want to understand it very well, but you kind of act as if you do. Well, that, yeah, so much of that sort of stuff is, especially when you're starting out, is the performance before the understanding, isn't it? You yes. know, you, but, and, you know, looking back at Submarine, he, he uses so many um, obscure and long words. And, it, <laughs> you know, I don't remember what, any of them mean like, like uh, me the author yeah. uh, uh, and it's just that classic thing of, of you just dip into a book of obscure this is how I wrote it you know I had this brilliant book of obscure words and you can imagine someone doing this you just pick one and you deploy it judiciously <laughs> and it comes across um, hilarious. suitably and all the chapters are, are these words that Oliver has picked out and it, well, building on that there's a line that he goes um, this is his father, he goes, yeah, he used the word I don't understand, he sees my discomfort. <laughs> and there's sort of that thing of, it's really like, in some ways he's very mature, but also he's so infantile at, at, at the same time. Um, one of the things that I think it is common throughout all of your books is, um, it, it are obviously children and adults. Um, but what I think sort of unites all three is that the inversion of maturity Mm. Or rather, like maybe even like the performance of, of maturity, because you have children, the, the younger characters performing like adults, right? And and the adults sort of returning to their more childlike state. That that that's I think that's completely right. And, and I often yes. Yeah, yes, I often use the children as the clear-eyed ones who cut through adult performance, mm. um, and they're great. Young characters are great like that, especially teenagers, you know, they can come into a scene and just annihilate the room with that kind of laser precision that you somehow attain when you're 15. And, that, and that's why being a teacher was, uh, a secondary school teacher terrifies me, because you've got this room full of people who can just zone in on your weakness and tell you it straight, like, this is, this is what you're doing, this is embarrassing, but you, you perform in this way or you pretend to be this. And I, and I love that from a fiction point of view to have us Were you that kind, kind of, of antagonist. <laughs> I was actually, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I completely was. Um, and, and also, when you're 15, you can quite often be a evangelist and a bit of a fascist. You know, you feel so secure in your worldview, and also mm. the fact that you've never really made any mistakes allows you to be judgmental on a, on a level that you can't be later on when yeah. you're a grown-up and you start to realise that you're you're flawed. Yeah, I think yeah, I think Stephen Fry said nothing is more um, 
self-righteous nor is right. No, no, nothing is more yeah, righteous or is right as the adolescent mind or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's very true. <laughs> yeah, completely. Um, and I remember that as a, as a 15 year old, just feeling absolutely bulletproof and just thinking, I, I just know how to live my life. It's so obvious to me. Why are these adults mm. failing? Yeah, no, I think that is true. And that resentment your parents and you go, how, and you can't see how we'll probably will, you will end up like that. Like, <laughs> yeah. I just pity, you pity them. Like, I yeah, pity your choices you've made. Yeah. I will endeavor to be nothing like you. We were talking about, I was talking about it with my friend yesterday. He, he was saying, you know, I'm trying to remember what things my parents, now he's had a child. I'm trying to remember what things my parents gave to me that did get through, that did get past the kind of cynicism barrier of, mm. of the teenager. And I was trying to think too, and I think basically the only thing my parents gave me that really stuck was Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles. I don't think anything else they tried to introduce to me seemed anything other than embarrassing and uh, bad. Really? Yeah. That's not a bad album to be introduced to. It's a great album. Yeah. It's a fantastic album. I got Jamie Cullum. Right. Something. And that, that got through. Nora Jones. Okay. And Katie Mellower. Okay. <laughs> Well, those are the ones that connected of your of your parents. No, not not necessarily through 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 choice of my own, right. just through through repetition. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> well, well, that will also work. That will also work. Which is great. You know, there are five million bicycles in Beijing. Okay, that's, um, <laughs> that's a reference. I'm presuming comes from the back catalogue, Katie Manuel. You correct. <laughs> you are <laughs> hell of an album. I can listen to some of it later. No, but I don't even like that music. But no, but when it comes on. I just, I just feel like I'm back at home again. It's quite nice. Right. Which is nice. Yeah, when I, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Those albums can become totally fixed in childhood. Like, yeah. like I just think when I hear Dolly Parton, I'm back in the, uh, the car of my first girlfriend's parents, and they had a really good sound system. You could hear all Dolly's lovely pick work on the guitar. Love it. She's doing a gig sometime soon, I think. Is she? I think so. I love her. Maybe she's doing one. Hmm. Maybe it's like she might feature with the Stones this summer. I'm not sure. I saw somewhere. Anyway, she might be doing something. Um, but like you were incredibly young when you when you wrote this book. Um, I want to ask you: Do you think because it's such a comic novel and it's kind of coming in age and that sort of the latter end of, of adolescence, mm. do you think you could have written that book now, being in your 30s, or do you think that proximity mm. in your own life to to the character that age is, is is really important? I think I couldn't have written it now, and I remember feeling at the time that it was still within, uh, I don't want to say short-term memory, but it was mm. still within reach. Within reach, and But enough distance to understand it and ridicule it. Exactly, and, 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 I, and I remember th also feeling that it was fading and there was some urgency to getting Submarine written. I thought, I'm going to forget, that again, that, that uh, sense of power that you have as a, as a teenager and the, the, the texture of it if I wait too long. So I, I definitely wrote thinking this might be my last chance to write this mm. person. Um, and it went on to be a hell of a success. Yeah, yeah it went well. Um, did you ever really think that that, that would be the case? I, I, on this, no small I know, part of you wished it. I wished it, of course. I, yeah. I wished it, but I honestly didn't. Until right near the end of finishing it, I certainly didn't ever think it would be published. Mm. Um, I certainly didn't ever see the book being a success and I certainly didn't ever envisage the film or the kind of life that the film has given it. Mm. Um, How's, well firstly tell the story, how did that film come about? Who approached who for 
did Richard come to you or was that the production company or did you go to them? Right, well basically it was an unusual circumstance in that I was living in Norwich writing Submarine. I was living with my friend Ali who was trying to get into the film industry. He'd studied film at university and we were both kind of hoping to have our creative exciting careers but not quite, not quite yeah. knowing how to do it. And I remember seeing on this website of a record label I really like, Warp Records, that they were starting a film company and it said, Oops. interns wanted. Oh, they got nothing for you, man. No sausages. <laughs> <laughs> we're being approached by hungry dogs. Do you want a sausage for the dog? <laughs> I've got nothing for that guy. Um, and so I said, oh, Ali, you should apply to be an intern at this film company. And he did, and he got the job. And basically, I finished my book and I gave it to him before it was published. Yeah. And he showed it to his boss, Mary Burke, who is now one of the, who was one of the film's producers. So basically it was this amazing bit of luck where nice. she read it and liked it even before it had come out. Wow, so there was this possibility for a film before even publication. Well, certainly the wheels of the film being made were in, were in motion already. And she gave it to Richard Iwade and he really liked it. And then, yeah, so this is a and was very, that very unusual. collaborative between you and him in, 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 the, in what direction it would, what it would look like, what it would feel like? It was, it was collaborative. We did a lot of work before he started script writing. Okay. So there was a lot of watching films together. Mm. We explored voiceover lots because we were conscious, or he was conscious, that that's one of the kind of easiest pitfalls to fall into is dodgy voiceover. And so right. we watched a lot of ways that voiceover yeah. can fail. Yeah, uh, and lots of films in which it's it's great. I heard you on another podcast said that he um, he went up to his attic and watched lots of films. Yeah, it was fantastic. What's, was his, so attic, what's his attic like? It's a little, you know, cinema it's a, room. It's a little there. cinema room. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it's dark and musty, and you can with the project, and you can see that the fog. Right. Thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, no, it was great. We watched. All sorts of films. We watched Scorsese and we watched Woody Allen and we watched um, what other films have notable voiceover? American Psycho and um, Wes Anderson, I suppose. Uh, yeah, and um, what's the film about the young boy and the old lady? The Good young, no, the little death-obsessed boy who's quite like Oliver Tate, um, Harold and Maud. Um, yeah, so we did it. We watched lots of films. And your second book, Wild Abandon, which came out in 2011. So you went from this place of sort of really inside the character's head and, and all their flaws from the episode, which is very funny, to then writing in third person, how, how was that shift for you doing that? It was a really interesting shift, partly a shift that I wanted to do just to know what it was like. Yeah. I hadn't written at any length in the third person before and I still felt like I was learning as a writer. So part of Wild Abandon, not that this is a very um, deep reason for writing a novel, but I just wanted to know what third person was like mm. to, to write up at, at length. So what I learned was that I, my big challenge was I couldn't maintain my voice, whatever that is, in, in third person, or it was much harder. There was something about third person that made me 
clam up a little bit and the sentences got kind of Victorian and stiff. And so it took me... Because I, what, you didn't have the narrate, the sort of invisible narrators didn't have a character of their own to impose upon the language. Right. And so, the, exactly that. And so the thing that I eventually learned to do was to allow whichever character the third person voice is most closely following mm. in the scene, their personality and their way of speaking infects yes. the third person narrative voice. It's a close third the whole it's time. It's a close third. So it, once I established that and kind of ran with it, then I had a lot more fun. Yeah. But it, I'd say the first year of writing that novel was just trying to work out how to be myself in that mm. framework. And what are the different, what are like the, um, if you were to write out on a piece about pros and cons of first versus third, what are the pros of, th of third that you don't get in the first? Well, the pros of third are um, lots of plot advantages. You can be so much more efficient in moving between scenes. Yeah. There's no expectation. You need to be anywhere. You just go where the action is. You can see inside whatever character's head you want. You can cut, you can have that thing that they obviously do in TV and film a lot of having intercut scenes yeah. where you go back and forth between uh, two things and they kind of mirror each other. There's so much fun to be had with intercutting yes. and uh, multiple narratives happening at the same time which is really, really exhilarating. And you can have some of the pleasures of the first person narrator if you allow that close third to yeah. happen. So in a way, it's the best, It's the best, except somehow it isn't. <laughs> and first person has loads of problems. I hate the fact that your character needs to be in the place where the things are happening. It's so mm. false a lot of the time, you know. I was walking down the canal and there I saw on the canal boat the other main characters having a really important scene and they were close enough that I could overhear all the dialogue yeah. and then when they went inside the boat it was lucky I had an angle through the window and I could see everything like all this stuff were like everything is coincidental you have to yes. it's just really really clumsy mm. a lot of the time um, but there is the freedom and the energy and the ability to, di to digress freely yeah. and just fun with language that, uh, that I find much more natural in first person and that's where a, a lot of the pleasure I get from writing lies so I, I think well, that's very overall I, I, I prefer first. Yeah. If you had to do one the rest of the time. I think that's right, I yeah. think that's right. That's fair enough. So Wild Abandon is a it's set in the year 2012, the year that supposedly the world was supposed to end, and it is set around a, uh, a commune, again in Wales, is it right? Yes, yeah, yeah in West Wales. In West Wales, um, and these people have given up, in post-2008, the crash, they gave up their jobs and moved there and started this commune. Um, and it basically, again, it follows the lives of two siblings there, getting their sort of parents' marital issues, but also them, yeah, that sort of just journeys of discoveries they leave the commune uh, and stay in there this all came about because you had a friend of yours who, who, who lived on a commune that's right yeah my friend Martha we went to university together and we didn't know about her childhood and then we learnt that her middle name was Acorn and that seemed to have a story behind it and then yeah. when we um, prodded her about it it became clear she had a really fascinating childhood um, growing up in a commune which still exists in West Wales called Brithdear Mower. And did she it's take you guys place. there? Yes, yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing place. 
um, one of the longest running communes in the UK. It's taken lots of different forms, but it's, it's been very, very successful. Yeah. And from that, I started to research other communities around the UK, from Findhorn, which is quite another famous one in North Scotland, where that began on a kind of, kind of semi-cultish, religious bent. There was a charismatic leader who was somewhat of a seer, right. um, who was able to predict the future and she told them we need to stop here and this is where the vegetables will grow and then they planted the vegetables and even though it looked barren and nothingy it was a f the vegetables grew huge and it was a kind of amazing like formation story um, and that was in the 70s and then it got now if you go to Findhorn it's quite a different prospect the charismatic leader, leader died maybe 10-15 years ago and now it's somewhat more of a business it's a kind of healing business you know right. you go there for a week you work the land you conduct ill-advised non-professional therapy sessions in which you dig out your childhood and, and never get to put it back together again and you pay 600 pounds a week to do so <laughs> to do so um, and then I went to that might be always the thing though with, with those kind of cults I was watching one on Netflix last night Wet Wild West just come out about that commune from India to Western America but what happens to these sort of cults and institutions when the leader does die there seems like they never they never seem to have the longevity of idea to, to keep going after their presence is gone completely yeah that that vacuum that occurs after the leader either leaves or mm. dies is fascinating and those communities always morph into something else yeah. and sometimes it's better and a lot of times it's worse or at least betrays the original uh, mm. intentions. And so you, you said somewhere that you wanted to, to this, this book to give a more nuanced view of the life of, of, of communes. Right. What was it before in the, in the media that had sort of ground your gears and that maybe Martha's gears about how mm. it was depicted? Right, well, I think probably Martha and most communities experience of public uh, of media life is really, really clumsy. Journalists coming down, mostly from London, being like, I'm going to do one week living in a mud hut, yeah. and then I'm going to go back to London and write about it. And these really patronising, yeah. really basic, trading on free love cliches and Californian cliches of what um, a, a commune or community might be. And invariably, not really investing in the idea of it, just tourism. Yeah. And they had a lot of experiences of just feeling betrayed by journalists. And so if you try, as a journalist, if you're trying to visit any community, you'll almost always find um, them resistant to you because the experience is generally just of some slightly obnoxious um, hack trying to fill yeah. uh, page space. And how, but how, and how, but how do the... Um sort of the original dwellers try and separate the sort of the tourists and like people just trying to cash in on some of that awesome experience to those with a genuine um, sort of intention to really yeah, contribute to yeah. the society. Well, no, you know, there's, there's lots of ways. They, they, <coughs> they interview people, they probably Google people. CV, yeah, <laughs> LinkedIn. I, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, th th there's lots of processes. If you're in, entering, trying to enter a community as a, a member of that community, there, there's often quite involved processes, processes to make sure that you're 
suitable. Yeah. Would you ever consider it as a full-time? I would, yeah, definitely. Yeah. My fr a friend of mine is in the middle of setting up a community now in um, the Ardèche in France. Um, amazing old, I'm not sure what sort of factory it was, but they've got this huge space, and about 30 of them all living in it, trying to transform it over the next yeah. few years. Yeah, so that'll be really interesting. I, I would be a big advocate for it maybe later in life when my kids and stuff have left home because now we're going to live for so long, okay? This is my theory. Yes. And then, you know, divorce rates are on the rise and stuff. And so imagine that when you get to like 50 and your kids are all like getting jobs and you, like, you look at it and you're like, it's just just us. Yep. For another 50 years probably. <laughs> We've already done that for years 20. Yep. We've now got just us. So what do you do? You get together with all your mates and you go and live together. Completely. Because everyone's on better form with their mates. They are, and... It'd just be great, wouldn't it? But, you know, the people do that without the name commune attached to it. Mm. People go to retirement... Great Hotel. Indeed, <laughs> yeah, retirement communities, but also just, you know, that's what, the, that's what moving to Portugal's all about, isn't it? You yeah. go with a load of, like, um, like-minded people and you buy up all the houses in a tiny village and that's basically it. Guest list would be hard though, wouldn't it? Guest list? Yeah, as in like you'd be like, okay, well, we want their cook up at them. I'm not sure about that husband though. <laughs> Could they come up? Yeah, there'd be a lot of the team sheet for that. Yeah. yeah. would be hard one. Yeah. You don't want someone coming in and like, oh God, you're, you're hideous. Well, that is the, the very heart of why communes are problematic. Yeah. Is that there's always trouble. reason this walk today is we're walking in the footsteps of where your most recent book The Adulterance is set um, so talk us through the passage that he goes through for, um, Ray to right. where we're going to now so we're walking now along the Lee River we've got Hackney Marshes on our right stretching out towards Walthamstow and um, on our left we have social housing and uh, on the towpath here uh, little children cycling their bikes and people going for walks and it's rather pleasant and in the novel this is where Ray is hoping, Ray the main character is hoping to buy uh, his first home with his wife where he lives further south where we started our walk he can't, can't remotely afford to live and so he's having to look further out to try and find somewhere they can afford and in the passage I'm thinking of he he knows that he's been outbid on the home he wants and he's come here to intercept the viewing of the cash buyers who are who are outbidding him in order to scare them and intimidate them <laughs> and make them think that the area they're moving into is full of psychopaths <laughs> it is a very funny section of the book um, and so the adulterance basically follows the character of Ray as he sort of enters his early 30s and he is a sort of tech journalist and it covers all the issues of sort of the house and uh, his wife who is heavily pregnant and he's sort of growing up and responsibility is encroaching upon him when he's perhaps not ready for it and it's a real sort of 
it's very i find it quite a, a moving book at times as well but it also is very very funny and there's some lots of takedowns of kind of millennial urban life even though he is not a oh. i thought we were going to be friends he didn't like the book <laughs> it's all right um and yeah it's a, it's a really funny sort of takedown as well of also kind of millennial life even though he is not a millennial it's a, yeah it's a kind of part um i think what really interested me about the book was it seemed at that point in your life, and I didn't even know that yet because I'm 24, so I haven't even got that yet, but there seems to be, this is why I'm fearing a lot, and I'll ask you if it's true or not, that as you get into your 30s, you kind of, you still haven't quite let go of the self-serving years of the 20s when you answer <coughs> pretty much only to yourself, and then suddenly you have all these other responsibilities on and you're perhaps not quite ready for them, but there's that overlapping period and people yeah. are at all different stages but all at the same time. And I think mm -hmm. it's quite a, it's a really fertile period in life to, when there's lots of comedy from it, but also quite a lot of drama and tension and conflict as well. I think that's exactly right. Um, I remember thinking that there wasn't really much drama, inherent drama in my 20s from a fictional point of view. Mm. You know, it's, it can feel a little bit hollow sometimes because you, you are most of the time kind of looking after number one um, and having fun and sometimes that feels, you know, you can feel a bit lost, but ultimately there's no real horrors uh, um, on your doorstep. But that transition into your 30s when biological necessity and just tiredness of doing the same thing <laughs> over and over again starts to have its uh, impact. Now I remember feeling in myself and noting in my friends that there was a definite sense of the world closing in a bit mm. and things becoming quite a bit more serious and but as a um a writer would i mean, imagine your friends would kind of look at you perhaps slightly different do you feel that very less so than your friends who maybe have a more traditional sort of office desk job even though there's probably a serious routine to the art of writing Maybe that's hard viewed upon, but do you think there's kind of a bit more creativity and agencies a bit more free? I mean, <laughs> contemporaries. Right. I mean, my my job is great. I have never. I guess I'm lucky, and I've never doubted that I'm in the job I most want. Yeah. <laughs> so that that that's certainly something I haven't had to worry about. But all the other anxieties, just about. Will I be able to handle this transition? How can I cope? Am I doing the right thing? Should I just run away from it all and be a 25-year-old who is actually 45 forever? You know, these are the, the the choices that I feel like a lot of people weigh up as you approach the end of your 20s. Mm. And Do they people talk about them? Not really. No. Not really. People just get depressed and go to therapy. Um, at least in my experience, um, or, they, or they don't go to therapy. Yeah. And um, I think it's maybe slightly embarrassing because it's like, oh, what, you're stressed about, oh, I've, I've had a lovely time and now I've got to stop having a lovely time maybe. Or my life's going to change a bit and I'm going to have to kind of, I don't know, embrace responsibility. And mm. that seems like a very bourgeois and, um, undeserving thing to get upset about yeah. so in a way that shame the sense that your sadness or your fear is is not valid is part of what makes it a challenging thing it's a great therapist 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. There we go. Another <coughs> one. Not valid. Yeah. Um, but I think my, my dad, I was talking about my dad once, and he said, listen, just your... So it might not, they, those all things might seem very fearful and, and that sense of you're losing what you have now, but you're just, mm-hmm. your idea of happiness and good times just change and evolve as you grow up. Right. And what you do now is not what you wanted to do in 10 years time. Right, completely. And if only we were capable of knowing, of believing that from yeah. the current position, believing that the next stage has its own pleasures and happinesses. But I guess part of, yeah. Being in something is not being able to really imagine the other thing. Um, but there are some fantastic bits of the book, and it kind of follows. Uh, yeah, it's going right here through the park. Um, so it follows Ray and his <laughs> wonderful decline as the book goes on, as he's trying to get a house and, 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 and save his relationship. And then also revolves around a group of friends as well, who are kind of all similar age, doing the same sort of thing to varying degrees of success. Um, and there's a great bit here that I wrote down, which I want to read out. Um, and so they all meet together on, on, on this park for a picnic. Um, and it goes, I don't know why when we, I don't know, I don't know when we started kissing on both cheeks as a greeting, but probably London was to blame. And if at first there'd been a little sarcasm in it, we were making fun of theatre people, that was gone now and we were just those people. <laughs> um, is there a sense now that you kind of, I, I feel it's a lot of becoming the people that I used to take the piss out of. Yeah. Yeah, completely. What's the Vonnegut line? Um, you are what you pretend to be. Yeah. Um, <coughs> so yeah, that's that weird thing of how ironic behaviour very quickly sheds sheds the joke and just becomes who you are. Which is why irony can be so dangerous. If you ironically racist, you think you're um, doing great work mm. undermining racism, but actually it's just it just, just isn't. It's just the same. Um, yeah. Especially, you know, through repetition somehow it gets worse and you, it just stops being a joke. I think also, especially sometimes, and I'm kind of, I never really engage with it because you never quite know, because again, irony is quite that like, slippery element to it, but especially in like, the written, when it's written down on social media and stuff, you have no idea if they're being ironic or not. Right. And it can always be defended as being ironic right. and you're not <coughs> part of that group so you don't understand the purpose which the joke is. Oh, you've like, missed the context. Oh, yeah. <coughs> It's quite scary. It is scary, and and that's why social media can be so dangerous, isn't it? Because you know people can miss the context. Mm. You can, like the guy who said he was going to blow up the airport, um, and it was it was just a bad joke. It's a joke that didn't work. Um, Makes me think. I I once had my bike stolen, and it was a black nondescript bike, and I tweeted that if anyone sees someone on a black nondescript bike they should chase after them and kind of take them to the ground take them to the ground Tom Hardy on them right which was a joke and a way of for me to kind of process how annoyed I was but it got taken out of context and all these pro bike kind of um, and you're as pro as they come activists yeah which I am one of started sharing it it I was it was a horrible feeling watching it in real time go semi-viral suddenly it went to Holland and these guys were tweeting from Holland like, who is this arsehole telling people to hurt people on black bikes? Copenhagen like, runs on bikes. Yeah, right. I was like, oh, oh no, my joke didn't land and now I'm a hate figure. No, you're, well, a bit like how Ray inadvertently becomes in the book. When the riots take place, he's then pictured smiling as he's offered a can of beer outside this um, trash street. 
um, and that becomes a viral sensation that he mm. seems to be reveling in the in the misery of, of, of those around him. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you, you, you pity him at that stage, but it is also very funny. I, again, this thing in your book, how I want to know how do you create these lovable characters, but at the same time making them un, unforgivable? How do you <laughs> straddle that 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 balance? Is there right? Is there is, is there a conscious? process behind it you go okay mm. this is going a bit too far you mm. bring it in or, or yeah, it just come naturally that, that's exactly no it's not natural I think when the first draft happens quite often the characters are inhumane and, and and just too far one direction often they are not human enough right so part of the editing job is often humanizing and softening and texturizing a character so that you can counterbalance the um, unforgivable actions or the unforgivable personality traits with other things that are that are softer. And I, and I never want to write a book that's just a satire and it's just taking people down or pointing the yeah. finger. So I always try and have that counterweight. Um, and what what comes first is the. Does the sensitivity come first or just the humour come first? Even though it might end up looking like one is more than the other, but you kind of anchor it in the sensitivity or in the comedy and use it like that. That's a good Does question. I'm not really sure. I guess it's, it's difficult to say in the writing moment yeah. what, which one is leading. Um, sometimes I'm excited by, a, I guess, a satirical situation, so that might lead. And other times I'm just into the voice, so yeah. that, that might be more about painting a, a realistic seeming person. Um, and when you are writing, what is a kind of typical writing day for you? A typical writing day is, well now I've had a child, there just seem to be fewer typical writing days, but mm. getting up early is at the very heart of my writing life, so I get up as early as I can. Depending. How early early? Well, now I go to bed early, because my son goes to bed early, I get up at crazy hours, like, Four. Wow. Um, that's only because he's going to wake up at six or seven. So you've got three hour finite, depending on how he sleeps, finite two or three hours. But I love those two. And those two or three hours you can do a lot with. So. Um, but apparently, like, research has gone into it and said actually you are really productive in that kind of half state between mm. waking up and before you're fully conscious. There's something yeah. quite lucid about what happens in, in those yes, moments. Yes, and much less distractible, at least for me anyway. Because um, no, one's, no one's awake yet. No, the internet yeah. is even awake. The internet's not awake. It's the same news since yesterday. Yeah. Especially, you know, like they probably put the new news on at like six or something. Yeah. So if you start writing before that, then you really have got nothing on yeah. offer. And the news feed is still the same as what it was when you went to bed. Right. So that. Um, so in a way, has the kid been a real blessing in terms of giving that structure? <laughs> um, no, he hasn't. No, because he's pushed me out of my study. Like I used to have a study. You used to be on the tube, didn't you? I was once on the tube on the um, on the uh, um, village underground. Yeah, in Shoreditch, but yeah. that. That was fun for a while, but... Like my dreadlocks. Yeah, exactly. Like your dreadlocks and my long hair, it was fun for a time of life. Um, but things change. And then I had uh, the study at home, and then my son was born, and now I'm at the kitchen table, which is less suitable. Mm. Um, and I hear you also play for the... Like an author's football team? Yes. Is that true? This is the, one of the great... 
great things in life. Yeah, this do is they a... take uh, unpublished authors onto their team? You know what? They 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 really do. Um, well, te technically not, but um, promising works in progress. Yeah, I think I think the the criteria aren't so hard and fast, especially when we're short of players. Where so does they? Um, for it, I'm, I'm sure you could be. Hell yeah! Where involved. does uh, where, where does a comic writer play on the field? <laughs> Imagine a left, a left wing back. Right. Like Ashley Cole. Yeah, that's kind of that's like that's a comedy position, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you probably got your lone lone strikers quite a funny role as well. Yeah, that, yeah. You that. know, because you're just there alone, wait, like wanting glory but never getting it. A foreign number nine doesn't quite understand the role he's been given. Right. <laughs> running around a bit. You yeah. have you'd have like historical biography at centre back, wouldn't you? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and, and you know what? The, our centre back. He is, what is his specialism? But he is an academic, uh, a very impressive academic, Scottish. He's not actually, I want to say he's austere. He's not at all austere, but let's say for the sake of this stereotype that he's austere. Yeah, let's go for it. <laughs> and um, who else is in the middle? Uh, well, he, no, this stereotype, this theory is falling apart. The other centre-back writes books about Sabutio and he's very silly. So, That's um, fine. I mean, Lauren Koscielny's a clown, so <laughs> okay. you can have him in there. Well, yeah. Well, if you need a more serious centre-back. Okay, really? Oh, great. Yeah, I love it. I just don't get to play enough sport these days. You know what? The collective age of the back, the defensive back four of the England writers team is? What? Over 200 years. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. What's up, listeners? It's Ali G here. How goes it? I don't know why my outros always start with this kind of um, like Martin in um, in Ali G, like wannabe rapper. I'm not sure. I think it's the Ali G. I should change that. But then again, maybe I should just release my inner rapper. Who knows? Who knows? Anyway. Wherever you are in the world, I hope you are well. Um, and I, I say the word well because on SoundCloud I can see where you guys are. I'm not in like a, a stalkery, predatory way. It just gives me some stats and figures. Um, so shout out to the US listeners and also to the one in, um, in Bahrain. Great stuff. Slowly, this podcast, its tentrils are encroaching upon the world and I shall be a global audio phenomenon. Phenomenon. Um, anyway, hope all's well in your respective lives. Joe Dunthorne, poor, poor, came into bat, didn't he? Really came into bat. Um, I was so looking forward to doing that episode, um, and I hope it didn't disappoint. It feels a bit like, and you, know, you go home, you feel a little bit fragile, and then Mum just like, poor there's a good Sunday roast and you just tuck into it and you finish you're like, oh yeah, that was so good, damn yummy. Yes. That's how I felt after that recording in some ways. I didn't say this explicitly to Joe because that would have been odd. But um, yes, I suddenly felt satisfied and content um, 
and at one with my podcast appetite following that because he was just so great extremely forthcoming very funny um, as you would expect um, just a really really genuinely nice chap um, we actually stopped the recording when it stopped and then we just kept on pottering around on our little trotters around East London um, which was charming in the spring sunshine so um, if you haven't yet um, read his remarkable books you definitely should submarine um, it's just incredibly incredibly funny um, and he wrote that I mean is it 24, 25, got published when he's 26, got turned into a movie, produced by Ben Stiller's company, Richard, I mean, it's just bonkers. The whole thing is, is nuts. And then just since then, he's gone on with two follow-up books, which is just fab. And then um, what I didn't get to tell you guys, which he didn't get a chance to say in the podcast, was that he's kind of working on a sitcom adaptation of The Adulterance in East London, which is just going to be, again, great. So very much high hopes for that. So keep an eye out for what's going to come your way from the Dunthorne of jokes. It's exciting times. And if you haven't, catch up on his back catalogue, um, because there is a wealth of material there for you to set your chops into. Um, any news from me, from my end? No, I'm in good spirits. Um, yeah, I'm just good. I'm good, and I hope you are too. This time of year, you can't... It's harder not to be happy, you know? It's just lovely. You know, the birds are chirpsing, the sky is blue, and life is good. Um, and I hope that is the same case for you guys. And I hope, more importantly, that you guys are enjoying these, because I am um, loving doing them. As per usual, Purse Does the Vest, a rating and review on the Eye of Tunes. will receive PDF copy of my manuscript, so please do that. It goes a very, very long way. Um, and I've got another absolute corker of a guest lineup for you next time. I can't quite believe this one's worked out, but it's going to be huge. So stay tuned. Um, keeping you guys. And in the meantime, you know what to do. Keep walking. Keep reading. Most importantly, keep listening. All right. Arrivederci. Arrivederci.